Good morning. Welcome once again to Del Rio Bible Church. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark 11. Okay, we're in Mark chapter 11 uh, as we continue in our study of the book of Mark. If you would join me in prayer, we'll uh, study the Word of God together. Lord God, we bow before you this morning, once again, grateful to you for your Word, grateful that we can study and learn what you have for us, learn what pleases you, learn the places that we fall short, places that we're succeeding the places that we need to change. We pray that you'll help us as we study your word this morning to see ourselves as you see us, to desire to grow, to desire to be all in our lives that you desire for us. Thank you for the salvation that you provide through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was willing to go to Calvary's cross and bear in his innocent, sinless body our sin so that we might be able to be part of your family, so that we might have the forgiveness of sins, so that we might have eternal life simply by putting our trust in him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for so great a Savior. We are ever grateful to him. Now, Father, guide us as we study this passage of Scripture this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The account of Jesus cursing the fig tree, which is what our study is this morning, is one of the, dare I say it, strangest accounts in Scripture, and one of the most difficult to interpret, and, uh, and yet that gets my juices going. I love to, to be able to dig in and uh, try to understand the Word of God and try to see what God has placed there for us. So this morning, uh, there are a couple of difficult things that in our passage that we're going to look at. The first is this account of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And then the second is part of the same passage is where Jesus says that if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, he said that it, what he says will happen, it will be done for him. So should we all get ready to get, go outside and throw mountains into the, <laughs> the sea? Uh, so there are a couple of difficult things uh, in our passage this morning, and uh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the chance for us to look at those things and to see what God is uh, saying to us. There are three words that I want you to either write down in the column of your Bible or write down on your study sheet, your sermon sheet, uh, because these three words will help us to understand this passage, will help us to understand what it is that Jesus is calling us to. The first word is fruitfulness. The first word is fruitfulness. We see uh, this in chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, chapter 11, verses 20 to 21. The word is fruitfulness. The second word that helps us to understand this passage is prayerfulness. 
prayerfulness. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 24, prayerfulness. The third word is forgiveness. That's Mark 11.25. So we have fruitfulness in 11.12-14 and 11.20-21. Prayerfulness in 11.22-24. And forgiveness in 11.25. All of these things, fruitfulness, excuse me, fruitfulness, prayerfulness, forgiveness, are products of faith. Products of faith. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage that our faith should produce some things. Our faith should produce fruitfulness. Our faith should produce prayerfulness. Our faith should produce forgiveness. And uh, so that's uh, something that will help us to understand this uh, particular section of Scripture. Now, the purpose for Mark recording this and the purpose for this particular passage of Scripture is twofold. The first is to show what God's expectation is for his people. And it's found in those three words I just gave you. God's expectation for you and expectation for me is that we will be fruitful, that we will pray, and that we will be forgiving people. That's God's expectation. He expects that of you. He expects that of me. He expects that of every believer that we will be fruitful in our lives uh, we will be prayerful in our lives, and we will forgive uh, those around us. So the first is the expectation uh, that God has for his people. The second purpose for this particular passage is to explain, Mark is explaining in, by recording this passage of Scripture, the coming judgment upon Israel. Remember, this is Passion Week when these things are happening. Jesus is only a few days now uh, away from the cross, and he will be going to the cross. And by going to the cross, the nation of Israel uh, has rejected their Messiah. They rejected the Son of God, God incarnate, the one that God sent so that they might... Uh, fulfill, have the promises to them fulfilled. They rejected Jesus Christ. He went to Calvary's cross. And so what Mark is trying to do here is to explain for his audience the coming judgment upon Israel. You see, it wouldn't be many years after the cross in 70 AD that the Romans would come and destroy the temple and come and besiege Jerusalem. So it is an explanation of that coming judgment upon Israel. So we have the expectation of God for his people, fruitfulness, prayerfulness, forgiveness. It is the explanation of the coming judgment upon Israel. Well, We read in verse 12, the next day, and uh, Steve began to cover this last week and promised that I'd figure it all out in the week in between and give you the answer. Well, I hope that we've done that. We'll see in a, just a moment. But uh, we, in verse 12, we read the next day. By the way, that would be Monday. If you want to write that in the, the column of your Bible, that would be Monday of Passion Week. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus, had, Jesus was hungry. 
seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Now understand what that means. A fig tree in leaf promised that there would be figs. That's when a fig tree was in leaf. Uh, it was normally an indication that there was food there. All right? But this one we find out, uh, he seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. In other words, this tree had sprouted leaves too soon. And therefore, it was going to be fruitless for this season. There would be no fruit for this fig tree. It would not fulfill its purpose. That's important for us to understand, if we're to understand this passage. It would not fulfill its purpose. And that's what's happening here. So, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, uh, a lot of people take out of that that Jesus was angry at the tree. At the tree. I, I find that hard to believe. <coughs> Excuse me. In his temptation in the desert, we find out that he could turn stones to bread. So therefore, there's not an issue with food. There's not an issue... Uh, he fed, remember, he fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. He fed the 4,000 with the same uh, fare. And therefore, there wasn't an issue of food for him. If he wanted food, he could have food. So it's not an issue of anger, I don't think, with him. It's not an issue there. The issue is this tree was not fulfilling its purpose. This tree was not fulfilling its purpose. It wasn't being fruitful, and it was meant to be fruitful. So that, that's what we have going on in this particular section of Scripture. So he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Then he continued on his way to Jerusalem, and Steve uh, did a great job last week uh, explaining about Jesus casting the money changers out of the temple. And he, so understand, he is on his way toward Jerusalem. He sees the fig tree. He wants something to eat. The fig tree promises fruit, but it doesn't have any. And therefore, he curses the fig tree. And then he continues on his way into the temple, and he chases out, drives out the money changers. Then that brings us up to verse 20. In the morning, now this would be Tuesday morning. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. In other words, what Jesus said happened. Jesus cursed the fig tree, and, and cursing the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses the fig tree, and uh, we find out that they saw that the fig tree had withered from the roots. Peter remembered, he remembered the words of Jesus and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, what is the, what is the understanding here? How are we to understand the reason for this? Well, the first thing we have to do if we're going to understand the reason for this is to do a little Greek grammar lesson. Are you in for it? 
Okay, we're going to do a little Greek grammar lesson. There is a construction in Greek called a sandwich construction. A sandwich construction. Now, don't think ham and, and cheese. Uh, the sandwich construction is a verbal construction, and uh, it has a topic, which is the top piece of bread. It has the meat, which is a second topic, and then it has the lower piece of bread, which goes back to the first topic. Do you get it? Topic one, topic two, topic one again. That's a sandwich construction. The reason that they used that kind of construction was to point to what the truth was, what the point was, what the important point was. And so what we have here is the fig tree, the fruitless fig tree. We have uh, the cleansing of the temple, which was also what? Fruitless. It wasn't accomplishing its purpose. It wasn't accomplishing what God had put it, brought it into existence for. And then we have the other part of the sandwich construction, back to topic one, the, the uh, fig tree. So what that is what Mark is trying to tell us by this construction is that this is not about figs, it's not about trees, it's not about Jesus' anger. What it is, it's about the people of that generation of Israel, it's about the temple, and it's about the way the temple was not fulfilling its purpose. That's the real point here. He didn't curse the fig tree because he was hungry and it had no food for him. It was an acted out parable, so to speak. It was an acted out parable. You know, the rest of the parables are, are uh, stories that Jesus told, but this is an acted out parable where he actually acted out what the, what the teaching of the parable was. And what is that? It's that like the fig tree, which was not fruitful, like the fig tree, which did not fulfill its purpose, the temple, that generation of Israel, the temple worship was not fulfilling its purpose. It was not being fruitful, and God desires fruitfulness of his people. And I don't mean just 2,000 years ago. He desires for you and for me to be fruitful today. He desires for you and me to be fruitful today. So what is the point of this? What is, what is Mark teaching us? What is Jesus teaching us through this cursing of the fig tree? We're being taught that Israel's religion was flourishing like the fig tree. Israel's religion was flourishing, but it lacked the righteousness that God desires. Israel's religion was flourishing. I mean, they had this great temple. They had all this activity but there was no righteousness being produced. They weren't growing in righteousness. They weren't spreading righteousness to the people around them. They were not fulfilling their purpose. One writer said the fig tree had promise without performance, and that's exactly what we're being directed to. Israel, the, that generation of Israel, the temple, the priests, the leaders of the people of Israel were, were, had promise, but no performance. That's the point 
of cursing the fig tree. It promised what it did not fulfill. And Jesus is showing by that, by cursing it, that there would be a judgment coming. Even as the fig tree was judged for not being fruitful, as the fig tree was judged for not fulfilling its purpose, even as that, Israel would be judged for not being fruitful. Israel would be judged for not fulfilling its purpose. Now, God set them aside and they will, they will come front, or, front uh, center stage in the future. But at this point in their history, God has to judge his people. He has to judge his people. And that's the point. That's the point of his cursing the, the tree. The meaning of the sandwich construction is the fig tree was flourishing but produced no fruit. And Jesus cleanses the temple where religion was flourishing but producing no fruit. No fruit. That's the meaning of the parable. One writer put it this way, the fig tree was a symbol of the Jewish nation which abounded in the leaves of religious profession but was barren of the fruits of righteousness. They weren't producing righteousness. They were busy. They were active. There was a lot going on. There was a lot of activity in the temple, a lot of activity among the leaders, a lot of activity among the priests, a lot of activity among the people, but no righteousness. No fruit. And we'll have more to say about this in just a moment, but that can be true of a church. That can be true of a church full of activity, lovely buildings, a lot going on, but not fulfilling its purpose before God. Not producing fruit. Not producing a righteous effect upon the, the, the people around them. Or not producing righteousness in their own lives. Well, as one writer said, this fig tree was a type or symbol of Israel nationally and its fruitless condition pictured the state of the nation. Much religion, but no fruit for God. Much religion, but no fruit for God. See, God puts no premium on ritual. Uh, Steve mentioned that last week. He did a good job about that. The, uh, he mentioned the book of Malachi, which is a great book uh, to understand that, that God puts no premium on ritual or activity for activity's sake. And that's a warning, I think, to churches today because churches today value activity but sometimes activity is the enemy of a deeper walk with Jesus Christ. We can become so busy, even in doing ministry type things, we can become so busy in those things that we aren't deepening our relationship with God, that we aren't deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we're not even taking time to be in the Word of God. We can be just like Israel before God. Judgment fell. Fruitless. Promise, but no performance. 
God puts importance on fruit. The fruit of salvation, the fruit of righteousness. He puts importance on seeing people come to him by faith. He sees importance in people growing in him. You and me growing in him. Becoming more like him, conforming to his image. That's what God puts a premium on. So what's going on here with this fig tree is the early, as one writer, uh, A.T. Robertson, he's, a, he's, a, a, uh, he's in heaven now, but he's a fantastic Greek scholar. And he said this, the early figs in Palestine do not get ripe before May or June. The later crop in August, it was not the season of figs, Mark notes, but this precocious tree in a sheltered spot had put out leaves as a sign of fruit. It had promise without performance. That's what's being judged here. Promise without performance. Another writer explains Mark's sandwiching of this instance with the story, this incident with the story of the barren fig leaves. That's the story of cleansing the temple was intended to help the reader to see that the temple was like the fig tree. Outwardly, the temple was an impressive institution, suggesting great devotion to God. In fact, Jesus' inspection of the temple indicated that it was a hollow show and that the priestly leadership was far more interested in revenue from the merchants than in reverence from God. For Mark's reader, the spiritual bankruptcy of the Jewish high priestly leadership was most fully revealed in their response to Jesus cleansing the temple, their plan to execute him. Their plan to execute him. Well, Warren Wiersbe said this, in spite of its many privileges and opportunities, Israel was outwardly fruitless and inwardly corrupt. Outwardly fruitless and inwardly corrupt. I see in this a warning to us in the church, a warning for you and me in the church age. God didn't, at the, at the turning from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God didn't change his mind about fruitfulness. He still wants fruitfulness in my life. He still wants fruitfulness in your life. He doesn't want to see you and me involved in a lot of activity and, and we were frenetically running here and there and some of it we call ministry and there's nothing of righteousness being accomplished. Israel appeared spiritually vital but it failed to produce fruit. Oh, that you and I might be seen as spiritually vital but fruitless but fruitless. The fig tree wasn't fulfilling its function just as the temple and its service wasn't fulfilling its function, bearing fruit. It was impressive. It was full of activity. It was doing religious things, but it was bereft of the fruit that God desired. It was impressive, full of activity, doing religious things, but bereft of the fruit God desires, the fruit of righteousness 
That is true of so many churches today. It is certainly true of the cults. They are full of activity, but not producing the righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. This is a warning. This is a warning. I like what Larry Richards said. It is not anti-Christian to be honest about the frequent fruitlessness of many churches today. Let's not measure spiritual reality by either flourishing activity or by great buildings. Let's return to kingdom principles, dependence on Jesus, and servanthood toward all. There's danger in being a busy church, but not a fruitful church. There's danger in being a busy church, but not a fruitful church. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis made an awesome statement, and I guess you could almost say that about every page. Uh, I really enjoy C.S. Lewis. I don't understand half of C.S. Lewis, but I really enjoy what I do understand. <laughs> uh, he said this in Mere Christianity, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christ. Isn't that a neat way to say it? The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. If we aren't helping people to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, we're wasting time. We're wasting time. Lewis said, God became man for no other purpose. God became man for no other purpose. See, it's important for us. Uh, you probably have gotten sick of us talking about reading through the Bible in a year. How many of you are sick of hearing us talk? No, no. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but there's a reason that we try to impress that upon our congregation. The importance of knowing the Word of God, the importance of of uh, knowing what God requires of us, the importance of being fruitful for Him. It, it comes by reading the Word of God. It comes by studying the Word of God. Uh, I, I really don't have time. I took up too much time in the first service sharing from an article. I'll just, I'll just tell you about the article, and uh, you, can, you can access it on the web, Okay. And it's called Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. Uh, I got a, how many of you have a Bible app on your phone? Okay, almost everybody in both services has a Bible app. Uh, mine uh, sent through a notification about a week ago, uh, and the notification uh, said this. Research shows that when you read the Bible for four days or more each week, it transforms your life. Now, we all knew that the Bible transforms your life, but what they're saying is that if you read the Bible like one to three days a week, it doesn't uh, do the job like reading it for four days or more a week. And it transforms your life. I read that and I said, that's pretty exciting, but I wonder where they got it. I wonder if there's research 
to back that up, that reading the Bible four or more days a week changes your life. And so I did some searching and came up with this paper by the Center for Bible Engagement, which, by the way, was purchased by the Daily Bread Ministry, and they now own this Center for Bible Engagement. And they did a study, a research study, Understanding the Bible Engagement Challenge. This is the full title. Understanding the Bible Engagement Challenge, Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. And uh, basically, I'll try, to, I'll try to give you a shorter version than I gave the first service. Uh, unfortunately, they say today, many Christians fail to tap into the power of God, the power of the Word of God regularly. As a result, our spiritual growth stagnates. We rely on only our own strength to deal with daily trials and temptations, making it more likely that we will fail and fall. Those falls hurt us and hurt our witness. And then it talks about how many Bibles, especially we in the evangelical community, own and aren't reading. And uh, they say here, unfortunately, owning a Bible and believing it's the inspired Word of God typically does not mean that people actually read their Bible. A lack of, and I'm skipping a lot here, a lack of spiritual engagement produces several consequences. Disengagement from God's Word has left American believers ignorant of basic Bible facts and truths, vulnerable to false teachings, and in many cases spiritually immature. As our research has demonstrated, those who read the Bible at least four times a week are less likely to engage in behaviors such as gambling, pornography, getting drunk, and sex outside of marriage. Now, the rest of the article expands on all that and shows uh, how they came to that conclusion. It's because we know the importance of being in the Word of God that we try to impress upon uh, each one of us to do that. And I hope that you're doing it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Uh, what I did find is something that I thought was interesting. The Navigators Ministry has put out a new Through the Bible in a Year reading plan, and it's just the New Testament. So if, if you've never done a Bible reading plan and you say, gee whiz, that's a big book. By the way, I just got a biography of Washington, George Washington, that Kathy read and loved. It's 900 pages. So talk about big books, all right? Um, and, and I may even read it someday. <laughs> but I've read through the Bible for many years now in a year's time. But maybe that's too daunting for some folks. Well, Navigators put out this 5 by 5 by 5 Bible reading program that just reads through the New Testament in a year's time. So they say if you'll give them five minutes a day, you can read through the New Testament in a year's time. And... Uh, so there are some of those reading things on the table in the back. Uh, if you're interested in that, I hope you'll help yourself to that. But what I hope that you and I will recognize, what their research showed, we, we know the Bible's powerful, right? We know that. Uh, uh, and, and we know that it can't do anything if it just sits on our side table it isn't something we take into our, our minds and let God work. Four days, four or more days every week will change 
your life. You can check it out. There's so much more. Uh, John 15, 1 to 5 talks about fruit bearing in our lives and, and ways that we bear fruit. Uh, the ways that we do are by drawing close to Christ, by abiding in him, abiding in his word. Those are the ways that we become fruitful and fruit bearing is so important in our lives. When we are abiding in Christ and abiding in his work, we, we're in his word, we become fruitful. We become fruitful. And the fruit that God produces, uh, there are many things. It produces a better family life for us, produces better marriages, produces better interactions with other people. Uh, Paul told us in Galatians 5, and 23 that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that God produces in us, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I thought we could go down the list and have a show of hands for every one of these. How many of us need... <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. The trouble is that if we don't... If we aren't in the Word of God, if we aren't letting God change us, then the flesh will take over what the NIV calls the sinful nature. When the flesh takes over, it produces, according to Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, uh, the flesh will produce sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, debauchery, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Wow. What a good life, huh? Some people think. We are meant to be fruitful. We are fruitful as we spend time in the Word. One, one quick more word and we got to move on. Um, D.A. Carson, uh, who Chris introduced me to and introduced all of us to, uh, has a, a great daily Bible reading book. And he said this, um, talking about the emphasis on the Word of God in Acts chapter 6, where what some people call the first deacons were, uh, were uh, appointed. He said, the reasoning of the twelve is stunningly focused. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Again, they laid down some criteria and cyst that they themselves will give their attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We may not have the 12 today, that is the apostles, but pastors, elders, overseers have inherited this ministry of the word and prayer. That includes not only teaching others, but during the, doing the serious study and preparation and intercession that stands behind good teaching and preaching. There will Always be a hundred things to distract you. Do not be distracted from what is central. There's always something to distract us, folks. There's always something else that seems pressing and more important. By the way, another one while you're Googling other things. Uh, Google the tyranny of the urgent. Mike knows, right? The tyranny of the urgent. Uh, enough said. I'll never finish today. 
and I, I'm sure you want to get out of here so you can have lunch and watch the Cowboys game. Uh, or a Packers game, as it may be. <laughs> uh, here's the point. Where Jesus should have found fruitfulness, instead he found barrenness. Where he should have found prayer, instead he found commerce. There was show, but no substitute. Promise, but no fulfillment. Profession, but no practice. It's a warning to you and to me against empty profession, unaccompanied by sound doctrine and holy living. There was lots of activity, but no real life. Liturgy, but no worship. Form and ritual, but no reality. Being a Christian should change our home life. Being a Christian should change our work life. Being a Christian should change all of our lives. And in case you're wondering, God desires fruitfulness in your life and in my life. Well, in, 20, in verses 22 to 24, not only does God desire us to be fruitful, he desires us to be prayerful. <clears throat> We read in verse 22, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you had received it, and it will be yours. And then verse 25, he gets into the third thing, which is forgiveness. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, first of all, I want to, I want to just mention something that I, kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. Um, most people, when they get into that passage, they say, wow, I can have the power to throw a mountain into the sea. That's just awesome. Why would you want to do that? I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, and by the way, he was talking about the Dead Sea there and, and the Mount of Olives. And I think I read in one of my uh, sources that I studied that you could see the Dead Sea from the Mount of Olives. And so he was thinking about a real thing. But all kidding aside, why would you want to do that? And then I... As I was studying this passage, I thought to myself, you know, I think we're missing the greater miracle here. The greater miracle isn't throwing a mountain into the sea. The greater miracle is forgiving someone who's deeply hurt you. That's far harder. That's a far greater miracle to be forgiving towards someone who's deeply offended us or hurt us. That's the greater miracle and God can give us the power to do it. Have faith in God. Basically, literally, that means have a faith which rests on God. Live in an attitude of dependence upon Him. Faith is unwavering trust, unwavering dependence in God's word and God's omnipotence 
and in his unfailing goodness. Faith is genuine trust in God. It's discernment, obedience to his will, confidence in his power, confidence in his will, confidence in the truth of every word he has spoken. God must be the object of our faith. We're told to have faith in God, not have faith in faith. So many believers have faith in faith. And they take, they take faith as a power you aim at God. Causes him to do what you want done. That's not what it is. Have faith in God. Not faith in faith. Not faith in ourselves. Not faith in our feelings. But have faith in the God revealed to us in the Bible who is truthful, who is an omnipotent, who is unfailing, and on whom we can depend. That's what faith is. It's an important thing. It's confidence in good God's power, confidence in God's word. Prayer, faith, removes difficulties. Removes difficulties. That's the idea here. Uh, Jesus is using a, 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 a grammar technique, which is uh, he's exaggerating to drive home the truth. It's hyperbole. We have here, uh, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. Jesus is using hyperbole to teach a truth, a truth that goes along with the Old Testament in places like Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 7, where mountains are Old Testament symbols of great difficulties. Mountains are Old Testament symbols of obstacles. Something that's strong, something that's immovable, a problem that stands in the way. In other words, God can move the problem that stands in the way of your life and my life. What are you facing today? What challenge are you facing what obstacle, what difficulty, what is strong and immovable in your life, a problem that stands in the way of your going forward with Christ? We are to be fruitful people, but we're also to be prayerful people. And last of all, in verse 25, we're to be forgiving people. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may, be, may forgive your sins. By the way, he's not saying that a person can lose their salvation. What he's saying is that when you and I are unforgiving, that is, we've already come to faith in Christ. We already belong to Christ. We already have the seal of Holy Spirit on our lives. According to Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, we're His forever. But you see, sins can block our daily intercourse with God. It can block our daily conversation with God. It can block our daily uh, enjoyment of the salvation which he has given us. That's what it's talking about. That's what book of Mark is telling us and what Jesus is saying here. We ought to be forgiving people. Um, there's so much more that could be said, but let me 
let me kind of quickly draw this to a conclusion since I'm about out of time. Some might say I am out of time, but I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> how do we forgive? There's so much that could be covered with forgiveness, but how do we forgive? Let me, let me give you seven really quick thoughts, and they're not steps. There are no steps to forgiveness. If, if you've ever had to forgive, I, I don't mean something picky, and I mean something deep and moral and hurt. If you've ever, have, ever had to forgive that, you know that there isn't any nice one, two, three steps. But these are seven things to consider if we are going to forgive as Jesus requires us to. Number one, we've got to admit our hurt and admit our anger. Number two, we've got to ask, and again, I'm not, this is no order, this is just things that need to be done. We've got to ask, number two, for God's grace and help. We've got to go to God. Number three, we've got to forgive as an act of the will. That doesn't mean we erase all recall. It means we let go. We yield up. We give up a debt. Number four, we forgo the right to strike back. Number five, we replace feelings of resentment and anger with goodwill, a love that seeks the other's good, not harm. Number six, it's a process. Expect that it will take time. Number seven, at the appropriate time, take steps to start over if and when it becomes appropriate. We must forgive others because, and, and I don't have time to turn, but I'm going to ask you to write this down. Matthew 21, Matthew 18, excuse me, verses 21 to 35. Ephesians 4.32. We are to forgive, forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. He has forgiven us an incredible debt of sin. We can never outforgive him of what he forgave us. One other thing, one writer gives us a caution. Let me share that and then we'll be finished. He said, but this writer said, but forgiveness offered does not always guarantee forgiveness received. A person may say, well, I didn't do anything. There's nothing to forgive. When repentance is not present, by the way, Luke 17.3 says repentance has to be present for forgiveness to happen. We must maintain a willingness to forgive and transfer to God responsibility for forgiveness as Jesus did when he was confronted by unrepentant soldiers who were simply doing their duty but were unaware of the significance of their actions. Father, forgive them for they do not realize what they are doing. Jesus said, we may sometimes have to just leave it in God's hands. Just leave it in God's hands. In 1755, a 23-year-old colonel was in the midst of running for a seat in the Virginia Assembly when he made an insulting remark as part of a campaign speech. The remark was addressed to a hot-tempered man named Payne who responded by knocking the colonel down with a hickory stick. Boy, now there's a town hall for you, right? 
Soldiers rushed to the colonel's assistance, and it appeared that a full-blown fight would come, but the would-be politician got up, dusted himself off, called off the soldiers, and left the scene. The next morning, the colonel wrote Payne, requesting his presence at a local tavern. Payne obliged, but wondered what motives and demands the colonel might make, perhaps an apology or even a duel. To Payne's surprise, the colonel met him with an apology, asking forgiveness for his derogatory remarks and offering a handshake. The move may have been viewed by others as politically expedient, politically expedient, but Colonel George Washington considered it personally imperative if he was to enjoy internal peace as he continued with his campaign. The moment, the writer says this, the moment we feel like demanding forgiveness from others may be a moment when we are to forgive. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this reminder that we... You desire fruitfulness in our lives. Help us to be fruitful as we abide in your word, as we abide in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to be fruitful. Lord, help us to be prayerful and help us to be forgiving people like our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.